we desire to be a thriving church, producing kingdom fruit. That's what we discovered when we gathered together to process our dreams and hopes for Dayspring just a few months before the pandemic hit. We desire to be a thriving church producing kingdom fruit, and we believe we can do that by strategically living into our mission statement. And by now, I would guess that most of you could recite that. We've been reciting it every Sunday morning for months. As followers of Jesus Christ, that's what binds us together. That's our deepest identity. Open in heart and mind, that's our ethos. It's the spirit of this place. We are seeking God. And not just haphazardly seeking God, but seeking God by putting spiritual formation at front and center of what we're doing in our work as a church. We're practicing peace, but in a new and particular way. We believe there are so many ways we could be about the work of shalom and peacemaking in this world, but we've decided to stop being a mile wide and an inch deep. Instead, we've changed our strategy. We've said we're going to go very deep in one area to make a deep and lasting impact. So we have made this commitment, haven't we, of putting our time and our service to our community and our money towards the root causes of poverty. Because we believe that we can make a deep and lasting impact of creating shalom if we do that. And we are creating community. Again, in some strategic, specific ways. Every church, of course, naturally creates community of some kind. Some church communities are healthy and some are not. Some church communities clearly reflect the spirit of Jesus. But not all of them, do they? We believe we can be a thriving church producing kingdom fruit if we are creating community really in three ways specific ways. One, by being intentionally invitational. Not just welcoming people once they are already in our doors, but learning to be invitational, to tell people in every way we can about the gifts of Dayspring in order to invite those who need a place like this to find this place. That's the first and really one of the biggest challenges I think we have as a church, learning how to be intentionally invitational. Second way that we are creating community in the spirit of Jesus is by being intergenerational, nurturing and building relationships across those generational lines. And we do that actually fairly well as a church, I would say, but it's something we need to not neglect. And the third strategic way we're creating community in the spirit of Jesus is by being explicitly inclusive. And that's true of being inclusive of all groups of people, but especially for people who've been explicitly not included in the full life of the church, such as those who don't fit into traditional categories of gender and sexuality. Dayspring, that's the roadmap we created to becoming a thriving church, producing kingdom fruit. And I still believe... That is the calling we have as, this, as a church. Now, the pandemic, the pandemic certainly interrupted some of that work. But even 
in the pandemic, we made some headway during this last year. And I know that my departure is also going to interrupt some of that work. But, and I want you to hear this, even in the midst of transition, you can make headway on that work. But here's the thing. Creating community, that last piece of our mission statement and strategy, it is messy, and it might might very well be the hardest part of what we are called to do and be. In fact, that's always been true in the life of the church, and to help us really understand that, I'm going to read a little bit more from this letter to the Galatians here in just a moment, but before I do, I actually want to set some of the backstory for you. As you might know, the letter to the Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul to a whole group of churches in a region known as Galatia, and it comes at a time when the church is actually wrestling with what kind of community they're going to create. In the early church, that controversy was really centered around Gentiles and whether or not they had to change their identity in order to be part of the church. Remember, that's what circumcision was all about. It wasn't just about some medical procedure. It was about changing your identity to fit the norms of a community. And you might remember that controversy really broke loose when Peter baptized that Roman centurion, that Gentile named Cornelius. You remember that story? Some of you do. It led to this great big controversy and a great big meeting in Jerusalem where all the church leaders gathered to talk about what God was up to. And after wrestling with their tradition and what they've always believed and wrestling with the scriptures and then also wrestling with their experience of what They experienced through these Gentiles and the Spirit of God in them. A decision was made. A decision that changed the very DNA of the community that was being created. The only thing required to become part of the church was a commitment to Christ. You didn't have to change your identity. You didn't have to fit into certain norms to fully participate in the church. Now that decision was explosive for the church in their time. This was a community that suddenly was changing, and that decision made it break out of its Jewish home, its Jewish origins. And because of that decision, it started to become something new, a different kind of community, a community rooted in the spirit of Jesus creating kingdom fruits. But that was not a simple kind of transition. They still had to learn how to live into that transition this new reality of what they believe they were called to be. And that's where this letter from Paul to the church of Galatians really comes in. You see, what had happened is Peter, who was that one of those first people to baptize a Gentile, he tried to live out their decision in some courageous ways by not just letting Gentiles in. He took things another step in the life of the church, a step that I think was probably intentional by intentionally creating relationships with people that had not been invited in before. You see, Peter, he broke with other parts of their customs by stepping out of his comfort zone and eating meals with the Gentiles. 
Now, that might not sound like a very big deal to us, although I imagine there are some people that would make you a little uncomfortable to invite over for dinner. But remember, part of their religious identity was deeply rooted in table practices, who you ate with and who you didn't eat with, what you ate and what you didn't eat. That was central to who they were. So you can imagine that during this transition, church potlucks, they, they kind of get complicated <laughs> for all of them, right? Just picture this. One Gentile just comes in and brings a nice big old ham for Easter lunch for the church and plops it right down in the middle of all that kosher food. And everyone gasps. They're horrified. Ham from a pig. That was a, an abomination to the Jewish people. And the Gentiles, they don't understand why nobody is going up and getting in line, so they just decide to go first. And they start filling their plates with a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of cross-contaminating everything with that ham juice dripping off their fingers. Peter sees what's happening, and he tries to be brave. And so he steps up first to fill his plate. And not only that, he goes and sits at the table with all the unkosher meat and unkosher people. He eats with them, which in the minds of his friends and probably the mind of his mama and his grandma, whose voice is going off in his head, what are you doing? You're contaminating yourself. This was an abomination. It's a huge statement. It's a very controversial one. But Peter, you know, he had seen Jesus break the rules when it comes to who you eat with and whom you don't eat with. And so Peter's just hoping, he's trusting that it was the right thing to do in order to create community in the spirit of Jesus. Only later he gets reamed out for it. See, some other Christians, they came down from Jerusalem, and they kind of have a conniption fit. It's one thing to baptize them, these other Christians say to Peter. It's another thing to just start acting like they're one of us. You can't just start abandoning all our sacred traditions. It's a slippery slope. I mean, what are we left with? What kind of people are we going to become? What kind of community are we creating here, Peter? And so Peter, in his sometimes very bold and sometimes very fickle selves, well, he caves. It's not like he probably really wanted to eat with them anyway. It was a little bit awkward, and he'd rather sit with his friends and not have to smell all that unkosher ham they were eating. So under fire, Peter stops eating with them. Only wouldn't you know it, it wasn't just Peter that his actions affected. Other people started following because, you see, this church was wrestling with what kind of community they were going to be. And before too long, it was pretty obvious what was happening. They were becoming a community that had a sort of two-tiered system, two classes of people. There were the real Christians, the grade A followers of Jesus and faith and tradition, and then there was just everybody else they tolerated in their midst. There were those who had the right identity, that is, they were born Jewish, or they got circumcised in order to become Jewish, and there were those who had the wrong identity. Now, Paul, he gets news of this, and he wasn't there, but he hears about it, and it just breaks his heart. Or maybe it actually just made his blood boil, knowing Paul. (laughs) But Paul understood what was at stake here. You see, the kind of community that they created was either going to amplify the gospel and produce kingdom fruit, 
or it was going to reduce the gospel and create poisonous fruit. And so Paul, he goes to Antioch, and he takes Peter to task right in front of everyone. And here's what Paul says as he writes to the Galatians about that incident that happened over in Antioch. This comes from chapter 2. Paul says, Later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here was the situation. Earlier, before certain persons had come up from James, up from Jerusalem, Peter would eat with the non-Jews. But then that conservative group came from Jerusalem, and he cautiously pulled back and started putting as much distance as he could between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that had been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, the rest of the Jews in the Antioch church joined in that hypocrisy so that even Barnabas... Even Barnabas, my good friend, was swept along in the charade. Paul goes on, But when I saw that they were not maintaining a steady, straight course of action according to the gospel, when I saw what kind of community they were creating, I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you, a Jew, will live like a non-Jew sometimes when you're not being observed by those watchdogs from Jerusalem. What right do you have to ask your non-Jewish friends to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? It's pretty strong words. Paul calls Peter to the carpet, and not just Peter, but others along with them because of the kind of community they were creating, and it was going to be so central to the gospel. Because remember, at the very heart of the gospel is a new reality where there are no second-class citizens. There's no stepchildren in the household of God. And any practice, any habit... Any tradition that would suggest otherwise had to be called out and changed. And so that's what Paul is doing here. You see, the controversy around circumcision in the New Testament, it was never about some medical procedure. It was always about whether or not we're willing to be an intentionally invitational community that is also willing to be explicitly inclusive in the way that Jesus was. In fact, in this letter to Galatians, it goes on and Paul starts to explain about how this was always about more than just Jew and Gentile. It's about every kind of identity that would divide us and create a class system in the church. That's what we heard read just a moment ago from chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes that in Christ, when we are a community that's being defined by the life of Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, but not just that. There's no longer slaves or free. There's no longer male or female, for we are all one in Christ. And that was a radical new idea. I mean, remember, they lived in this world where it was just normal for the head of the household to have his wife and his children and his servants. And I use the male possessive pronoun on purpose. 
They were living in a male-centric world where everyone and everything belonged to men. It's just the way things were. It was hard to imagine a society that didn't work like that. And so try, try to picture this. This was a society where slaves and masters were a normal thing. It was a part of the economy of the day. If you were a slave, that's just your station in life. It defined your relationships. It defined how you spent all your time. They couldn't see a world that operated otherwise. This was just normal. There were masters and there were slaves. But here comes Paul saying that Christ breaks down those identities so that as they gather together as a church, slave and master are going to sit side by side as brothers in Christ. And in a society where women were seen as inferior, where they couldn't even testify in court because you couldn't really trust a woman's word anyway. In a society where female babies were discarded at a much higher rate than male babies because female babies were seen as having less value. In a society where men didn't hesitate to divorce their wives if they got bored with them, and they certainly didn't hesitate to be promiscuous because, well, their wives were just their property anyway to do with whatever they wanted. It's in this world that Paul says that in Christ there is no division between men and women. In other words, The trajectory of the controversy between Jew and Gentiles, it's not just about circumcision. It keeps expanding more and more. It starts with Jew and Gentile. But as this community grows into the gospel, as it takes on the life of Christ, the gospel vision becomes about all the various identities that divide us, all the identities that create categories of impure people and pure people, all the identities that create categories of first and second class citizens in the kingdom. As the community becomes the church, all these identities start getting left at the door because the gospel is doing something profound and explosive, breaking down barriers, breaking down dividing walls. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slaves and free. There is no longer men and women, for we are all one in Christ. This is a profoundly radical idea. It's earth-shattering. It alters the very way they see one another and relate to one another in this community. And so this begins to profoundly shape the church and the trajectory of the church and the history of the church in some really interesting ways that starts upsetting the whole world around them. About 60 years after Galatian was written, after Paul was long gone and all the original apostles were dead and gone, there are still these tiny little communities of Jesus followers scattered across the Roman Empire. And they start getting noticed by their very odd ways of life, and it's really troubling to some people. And so there's this Roman governor named Philney the Younger. Remember, like, Pilate was a Roman governor in Judea. Philney the Younger was a Roman governor in this region right next to Galatia. And about 60 years after Galatians is written, Philney the Younger writes a letter to the emperor because he needs some advice on how to deal with this growing menace of these people called the Christians. And among his many complaints about their odd way was the way that women were allowed to hold positions of leadership in these churches. 
Not only that, they, they were welcoming all kinds of people into their community. They were being intentionally invitational and explicitly inclusive. And that was really starting to upset the social order and the way things were working in his region. And people were getting uppity. They needed to be put back in its place. What am I supposed to do about this, he writes to the emperor. Another writer in that very same century, Aristides of Athens, he describes Christians as these strange people who treated slaves with unusual kindness. Quote, any male or female slaves or dependents, if they became Christians, they were brothers to them without discrimination. Can you believe how corrupt these people are? He's writing. About the same time, Titan the Syrian wrote that Christians seemed to include everyone, making, quote, no distinction in rank or outward appearance or wealth and education or sex and age. They don't distinguish between any of these things. What is wrong with these Christians? See how corrupt and corrupting they are, these ancient writers were describing. And the stories and the records from history about how disruptive this was keeps going. The early church, these little churches all over the Roman Empire, they began to be seen as these radical communities that were intentionally invitational and explicitly inclusive. And it was creating this kind of vibrancy and kingdom fruit in the church, and it started turning the world around them upside down. You see, creating community, and a very particular kind of community, has always been both disruptive and essential for the life and the vibrancy of the church. I was reading a book by a guy named Gerald Sitzer, and this is what he has to say about this. This really got me. The church's message matters a great deal, for in it... It, pro it proclaims, the truth it proclaims is precious. It's the eternal message of the gospel. But, he says, the church's life together matters just as much. For such a community is proof that the gospel still has power to change people's lives. The gospel still has power to transform and heal divisions and provide a sense of belonging. It's life together is what proves that that's true, especially in a world that's so divided and chaotic. You see, Dayspring, creating community in the spirit of Jesus is hard and it's messy work. In fact, it very well might be the very hardest part of what we've said we're committed to do and the hardest work you have over the next year or two. But remember this, it's nothing new that it's hard. We are a part of an ancient tradition that has found again and again, if we will follow the spirit of Christ by being intentionally invitational and explicitly inclusive, we will bear profound, life-changing kingdom fruit.